Things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop of Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Tuesday, October the 25th. This is episode 770 of the Survival Podcast. We're calling today's show Modern Financial Survival. And the reason we're calling it that is because yesterday I did a show about how bad things are going to get. I talked a little bit about what to do. Today what I'm going to do is give you my, my actual plan, what I actually think you should be doing with your money uh, as best I can. I keep getting questions from you guys. I'm invested in this. Should I sell this stock? What should I? Ex- I can't tell you that, folks. I am not a financial advisor. I don't purport to be. I will tell you what I think you should be doing from a mile high level, and then the interest, the intricacies of how you do that are your choice, and you have to make your own decisions. And I'm going to tell you right now, before we get even into this today. If you're going to base your financial decisions on somebody telling you this is what you should do now, you're sunk. You're sunk. If, if, if you can't make the decision for yourself, you're going to end up with a financial liar, I mean advisor that doesn't know what the hell he's doing, that's going to put you in mutual funds, and when the shitstorm comes, he's going to go, don't worry, it'll all work out in the end. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Uh, and you're going to end up floating in these, in these funds in your 401k, and you're not going to be able to pull the trigger and move over to cash equivalents or the best thing you have within there. You're not going to be able to make decisions on your own. You have to be able to do that. Today's show is designed not just to tell you where I think things are going and how I think you can insulate and protect yourself. Uh, it's designed to help you try to get to a point where you are willing to make those decisions for yourself. If I wanted to get really, really rich... What I would do is develop Jack Spierko's Investing 101, 102, and Advanced Investing 401 or some crap like that and package it up and sell the hell out of it as an ebook for about a hundred bucks. Alright? And it wouldn't do anybody any good except me. That's not my job. My job is to help you think for yourself so you can take actions for your family. That's what we're going to try to do today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS-radio.com. It's M-U-R-S-radio.com. What I love about MERS Radio is that it allows you to combine secondary communications and security into a single platform. So not only can you communicate with other folks in your neighborhood or within your property or what have you, you can also determine whether or not somebody's there that doesn't belong there or something's there that doesn't belong there or even just your dog's trying to get out of the gate. Uh, you can do this with some motion sensors that work with the system and allow you to break up your property into four sectors and know if there's movement or heat in any one of those individual sectors. This will send an alert across the system that will say something like this, Alert Sector 1, Alert Sector 1. It's then up to you to figure out what the heck's going on out there. Uh, you might want to combine that with uh, IR cameras. That's one thing that we're looking at doing in the future ourselves here. Uh, but as far as the communications gear, Rob over at MERS is happy to help you out. Again, MERS-radio.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, as I call them the original survival podcast sponsor. What do I mean by the original sponsor? What I mean is way back in the day, 
when Jack had a few hundred people, maybe actually it was probably a couple thousand people by the time this happened, listening to the show and wasn't really sure if it was time to start selling advertising or not, uh, he got contacted by a guy named uh, Vic. And Vic said, hey, I'd like to sponsor the show. And he was the first one that did that. He was the first sponsor that we had. And that was almost three years ago. And he's still here. And I think he'll be here for three more years without a doubt. He also supports the show by giving away his Discount Buyers Club, which is a $29 lifetime membership for free to all members of the Support Brigade, which in of itself covers you know $30 out of $50 of your first year of membership due. So he's a great supporter. They've got great stuff. Anything you can think of for your prepping need, you'll find over at prepared.pro. That's their website. company, again, is SafeCastle. And uh, the other thing you'll find at Safe Castle is a link over to one of their sister sites where they uh, market and build and install some of the best hardened shelters you'll find anywhere in the world. So check out Safe Castle again at prepared.pro, prepared.pro. Remember with these wonky domains that we have now and all these different extensions and everything, the best way to make sure you're dealing with a Survival Podcast sponsor, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. Next up, want to remind you, of course, we are on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network now, along with a bunch of other folks. That's at PrepperPodcast.com. I uh, also want to remind you guys that we do uh, we do run this show here based on listener support and what's called the Member Support Brigade. Uh, you get discounts to 29 different vendors. Both of the sponsors that I just mentioned, MERS Radio and Safe Castle, do something for the Member Support Brigade. Many of the other sponsors do, and there's a lot of other companies that are not sponsors that provide discounts there. There's over $100 worth of free ebooks. It's a great program with a good return of investment, something we're going to talk about today. Remember, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps. Um, you get a special discount, uh, prior service or active duty in any of those. Email me before you join, and I will give you the discount code, which can be used on any membership term and applies to recurring membership. It's our national service discount. All right, with that, uh, I want to go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, but i got a couple announcements and some stuff to clean up from yesterday. Number one, I've been pestered for three years to do kind of an Orson Welles-ish um, zombie attack show for Halloween. Halloween's on a Monday this week. We're talking about some deep crap this week, and we will be talking about a lot of deep crap going forward. Every once in a while, we need to be able to laugh at ourselves and have a little fun. I put out a post yesterday of how you can participate. I've had some people email me and say, can I call it in? Can I call it in like, oh, the zombies are getting me or whatever? You can. I want you to be in character if you do that. Some sound effects wouldn't hurt. You can call 866-65-THINK with that recording and do it that way if you don't want to do it by email. I think as many of those as we could get would be cool. Here's the deal. Uh, I get tons of calls every day. I don't get them all screened every day. If you do a call in, as soon as you hang the phone up, email me and say, Jack, I just left a message and I called you from the following phone number. That'll help me find it based on the caller ID on my message service. And uh, I'll be able to put you into a separate queue, and that'll make it easier filtering because I'm going to have to get the show ready to go on Sunday and then do it on Monday. It should be cool. It should be fun. Some people out there are like, can't believe you're going to do this. This is so stupid. Whatever. Don't listen Monday. I mean, really, you know, it's like people, you need to get a life. Well, if you're that upset over this, man, you need a life. I- I'm sorry. Uh, I think once in a while, maybe we need, do need to have a little bit of fun with ourselves. And I think this will be cool, and it is Halloween, and let's just get a little bit in the spirit. Uh, next up, before I get into kind of today's show, I want to do a little bit of pickup. This ties into today's show, but a little bit of pickup from yesterday. Uh, one, I put out a story about the Catholic Church putting out a document calling for a World Bank and a global tax system. 
And a lot of people got upset with that. I would imagine, like me, you grew up and maybe still are Catholic. I'm not actually still Catholic, but I grew up Catholic. And most people that were upset about that have an affinity for the Catholic Church. You can have an affinity for your religion, and your religion, uh, the leaders within it can still do something that's not congruent with your belief system. Uh, that's just a reality, no matter what faith you're in. In this case, if you are not for global government and global, ta global taxation, uh, that's what happened. And some people have said you should have linked to the actual document. I will put a link to it in today's show notes, a translation of it. Uh, and you can look at it and you can read it. And whether or not MSM, who put the story out that I read, uh, accentuated certain things or not, what I can tell you, whether you want to believe it or not, the document does in fact call for a global bank and the authority of that global financial system to tax at a global level. I don't care what you want to believe, that is the very definition of global governance. So if you are opposed to global governance, you should be opposed to this, regardless of what your faith is or is not. And it is not a beat, beat down on the Catholic Church, it's not a beat down on Catholics, it's not a diss of Catholics, it has nothing to do with actual practicing of the Catholic faith. It has to do with a call from the church, the Vatican itself, to do something that liberty-loving people should be opposed to. And don't be surprised if it's not the last place you hear it come out of. Um, next one, yesterday I talked at the end about how what's coming is going to be a financial war. Uh, I talked about World War II. I talked about how uh, we are always taught that America won the war and it led to this great period of prosperity and growth and what have you. And I had a lot of angry people go email me and go, Chuck, I can't believe that you didn't tell us, you didn't say why the U.S. prospered. It's because they were spared from the bombs. You know, We were insulated and now Europe is caught up with us and, and other stuff like that. Look, I'm not even going to go into that. If you're going down that path with that analogy, you need to learn the definition of the word analogy. It's an analogy. The war I see coming isn't a shooting war, folks. It was I was trying to explain to you. And maybe a better way to look at it is, is looking at it through the eyes of a European who was not in the battle, who simply had their homeland bombed and burned down around them and had bullets fly through their windows and had their buildings collapse and being casualties within that conflict. Uh, maybe a better way to look at it is the U.S. Civil War and the, the, the you know vast number of people who weren't in the conflict but had to deal with shortages and things like that. Wars, regardless of their outcomes, create massive amounts of hardship while they're being fought and in their aftermath. That is what I am talking about. It is an analogy, right? It is not patriots that come and collapse. It's not the Dutch coming to repossess your home and gassing you with uh, psyops uh, gas or, or something like that, all right? It is an analogy, and it's one you better take to heart. Uh, I've also had people ask me, a lot of people ask me, Facebook, blog comments, emails, uh, suggest me, why do I believe so emphatically that I'm writing about a coming economic collapse? And the short answer is because I can do math. All right, I revealed the statistic to you yesterday that should have been enough to just quash any objections. There's 20 times more debt out there than there is money. Let me say that again. There's 20 times more debt than there is money. Just so you understand that, what I'm saying is if we took everybody's money, Bill Gates' money, your money, my money, a little old lady's money, everybody's social security check, the government's money, everybody's money, and put it into a pile and tried to pay off the existing debt, we would only pay off 1/20th of the existing debt and 19/20ths of the debt 
which is around 95% of the debt, would still be there unpaid and there would be no money left. That's part of why I believe this is coming. I believe this is coming because we are in a situation where just about every major city and most minor secondary and third tier cities in our country are nearly broke, nearly bankrupt, and are burdened heavily with retiree benefits that they cannot pay. It doesn't matter. Again, I've said this before. You got to understand this. It's not picking on the retiree. I'm telling you, they're out of the money. They don't have the money. They can't pay the money. At the best, they're going to have to cut those benefits, and those people that have been depending on those benefits are going to be hurt by that. They're going to have less money to spend, and that alone is enough to push this, this nation from a recession into a depression. And that's without defaults. That's everybody coming to the best agreement possible, and it's still only kicking the can down the road because the basketball is still going through the hose, and it's still going to blow out the other side eventually unless we completely change things and people are not willing to give things up. And that's just a couple reasons that I believe I'm right. I believe I'm right because I've called this thing since before it started every single step of the way along the way And every single thing that I've told you was going to occur, not only occurred, it occurred in the way that I described it. I screwed one thing up in three and a half years on projections, and it was the price of gasoline. And sooner or later, it'll come back and fix itself and, and be right as well. And it was because I didn't factor in enough the effects of the recession and downward pressure on oil prices. Right? That's it. Three and a half years, one. Which means my accuracy is about 95% or 98% probably. When you have that level of accuracy and you look forward and you can do math and you can interpret things and you realize there's no political or social will to actually fix the problem, you know that the problem has to come to a head and you know that the time is somewhat short. That's why I talk about this, this stuff. That's why I believe it's important that you listen to what I have to tell you today. And you can believe in the wonderful fiction, right? You can believe in the white hat mythology that this is somehow all going to work itself out. What I'm trying to get across to you and what I've been trying to tell you for the last few months as I've kind of ramped things up on this is even if we put half of the people that are unemployed back to work tomorrow, even if we got the economy zinging along like it was, you know, 10 years ago before the, or 12 years ago before the dot com crash, even if the stock market goes up by 50%, even if everything in the best case blue sky scenario happens, There ain't enough money to pay the debt, and the debt is continuing to grow, and the debt has reached a snowball proportion at almost every level. The debt at the government's level, at the federal, the state, the counties, the cities, all of it. They have started to reach a point where the interest on the debt is becoming the single largest expense on the balance sheet. You can't run a life that way, and you can run a government that way for a period of time. The reality is the bigger the government and the more authority the government has, the longer it can get away with it. Why do you think the first people that fail are the cities, and close behind them are the counties, and then the states, and then it's the Fed? Because no one else has a money machine they can turn on except the federal government. But if you know anything about money, you know that you can only turn that machine on so many times before you completely devalue the existing money in circulation, and you can't just make everything go away. And if we just printed the money to fix this problem, we would have to inflate the currency 20-fold. If we inflate the currency 20-fold, your dollar becomes worth what? What does your dollar become worth with a 20-fold increase in the currency? A nickel. 
Your dollar becomes worth a nickel if we do that. Sooner or later, it'll happen. It's a matter of how quickly it happens and how it's controlled. The problem with the long solution, the problem with the slow inflation year after year after year, where they tax the inflation as profit and they screw us over, is that we've reached a point where the debt interest is running away faster than the inflation. So we either have to rebase the currency or accelerate the inflation, and neither is good for us. So there you go. That's why I'm sure. Because mathematically, it is not implausible. It is impossible for the problem to be rectified without either a currency rebasement or a massive depression. And a currency rebasement probably causes a massive depression. So either we get a depression that gives us a currency debasement or a currency debasement that gives us a depression. I see no other way out of it. So today what I've done is put together a list of things I think you need to be doing to protect yourself in this period of time, focusing mostly on the financial aspects of it. Obviously, we want food. We want to make means of security, you know, all that stuff. But financially, what can we do here? Number one, I don't think anybody will be surprised to hear, and I won't talk a lot about it today, except I want to bring up something I almost never bring up in this regard, get rid of debt. Now, I think that anybody that's listened to this show knows that I make Dave Ramsey look like, uh, you know, a, a spendthrift, honestly, when it comes to debt. I hate debt as much as any person on the planet could ever hate debt. Not so much because I know what it does to people. I know what it's done to my nation. I know that the, the, the pro, every bit of the problem, every bit I just gave you of why we're screwed revolves around spending money today and betting that tomorrow there'll be more money so we can pay off today's expenses tomorrow and kick in the can down the road. So since I know that it's the cancer that's about to change the face of my nation forever, of course I hate it. But one thing you need to be looking at if you are in debt and you, don't, you can't get out in two to three years, if you have a longer time horizon than that, I always tell you to pay the smallest debt first. And hopefully this will hold true even with the smallest debt first. But one thing you've got to do is if you have a adjustable rate anything, a credit card with an interest rate that fluctuates, a house with an adjustable rate, anything like that, that debt either needs to be paid off quickly or you need to refinance it into a fixed rate of debt. When this thing hits, interest rates are going to go through the roof. It's going to exasperate the problem. And don't believe they've done one thing in Washington to prevent your credit card company from doubling your interest rate overnight. Don't believe they've done one thing in Washington that, that, won't, that will prevent that 3.1% arm on your house from becoming a 9% interest rate. They've done nothing to prevent that. Everything that they've talked about with that is complete total bullshit, and when these companies start to feel the squeeze, what they're going to do is look at all of the people that are holding debt out there as something to be harvested. And what you do is you start to turn the screws up and you push the interest rate as high as you can without crippling everybody. You don't care if 10% of your people go into default if you bring in 200% more money. And that's how they're thinking. I want to paint an analogy for you that seems different but the same in what Bank of America just did. Bank of America just, of course, if you haven't heard, you haven't been listening to any of the news, and good for you, so I'll tell you if you haven't been listening. They started charging people a $5 fee every month to use their debit cards. So if you go to Walmart and you whip that debit card out and you pay Walmart with your card instead of cash, 
Bank of America wants five bucks. Now this, a lot of people got angry and enraged, and it was used by the Occupy Wall Street and Occupy every other place people as an example of corporate greed, and their stock took a hit, which it should have taken a bigger hit a long time ago over their books, not this policy. Do you know what this policy is? It's Bank of America, in a despicable way, being brilliant about firing customers they don't want. What they, what they figured out is that most of the people that will actually get pissed off and leave over $5 are people that earn somewhere between $300 and $800 a week that take their paycheck and put it into Bank of America's bank in the checking side. They don't ever build up any savings, and all they do is run the money through their bank on a weekly or biweekly basis. And their net account value is probably about half of what they deposit. Meaning their, their business has no value to them. Understand this, folks. When a bank's holding your checking deposit, it's considered money that has to be immediately available, and they have to have reserve requirements in order to service your checking account. I talked about this yesterday. What banks were doing is at 11.59 p.m., taking their checking side and pushing it over in a short-term loan, two minutes, to another bank that didn't have this problem, So they didn't have to have the reserve requirement at the end of the day. The new bank used it to issue loans against, making it part of their reserve. And then at 12.01, they put it back. And then that way, the banks were able to not have to carry a reserve against the checking account value. So we know because they've done that, that they can view your checking account balance as a pain in the ass. Especially if you don't have a savings account there with that that's not growing. So what they want you to do, if you're a good customer in a bank, you have a savings and checking, hopefully you have enough in your savings account that you're helping to create your own reserve. If you're not doing that, you're an expense to the bank. So what do they do? They charge a fee and they push out who, and I'm not saying you are if you leave. In their minds, they push the riffraff out. They get rid of those pesky customers that don't really make them any money and they keep the cream of the crop of their customers. That's how banks think. And that's exactly what they're going to do with the interest rates in these variable loans when the, uh, you know, when the reckoning comes. That's all I can say for you. So get out of that. The next one, you're, a lot of you are going to balk at this one. And, and you're going to go, it's impossible, it can't be done. I'll bet you it can. Try to save 20% of your income until you can at least go six months without any income. So that's three years of that would give you six months of your income. If you're doing 10, then it takes, you know, It takes six years to give you six months. So it's up to you how you do that, but you've got to say, and let me be clear about this. This is not money in your 401k, right? This is, in fact, a lot of you right now would do well unless you have a company match that's significant to stop putting any money at all in your 401k and start putting money in a liquid asset style account, something that's short term and easily withdrawn against until you build up the savings. Those of you that are emailing me going, I have $2,000 in my 401k and I'm scared. Just your $2,000 is nothing. I hate to belittle it, but it's really, it's not worth losing sleep over. It's really not. It's money. If you're, especially when you guys that are like 25 are telling me this, that money is there for 50 years. You might not ever get any money out of that 401k. They might turn it into a government security. You don't know what they're going to do with that, right? That two grand that you're losing sleep over, you're wasting your energy and your time with. Put it in the best investment allocation in there you can get. It's not enough money to make a difference in your life if you take it out today. So leave it in there. Continue to make your, your contributions that, that enjoy an employer match. If there are options in your 401k you feel good about, and you're the only one that can determine that, 
But you need to build up liquid cash in your hand that you can get your hands on now. All right, And that is a combination of short-term CDs, money in a box that's fireproof somewhere in your home, possibly some money in a safety deposit box, and the money that's in your checking account, if your checking account doesn't read five bucks the day before payday. That's the only way the money in your checking account counts. If your checking account routinely stays into a few thousand dollars as a minimal balance, um, then you can count that money. If your checking account goes down to like 10 bucks and then you get paid and it goes back up, your checking account money does not count as a cash reserve. It just simply can't count because you know better. It's, it's a moving target. It's, 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 you're the people that Bank of America don't want as a customer anymore. All right. So there's, The next one. All right. This one is, and this is so important. If you buy a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, I don't care what it is. You need to know your exit point. At what point, if that stock or bond or security or anything or gold or silver, I don't care. At what point, if it has enough profit in it, will you harvest the profit and go to a safer investment like cash? And if the answer is never, you're wrong. Because you're dumb if you don't protect your gains. I would even tell you if you are a greedy pig and you're probably going to get slaughtered, you still need an exit strategy. You've heard the whole thing, pigs get, or greedy hogs, uh, pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. If you want to be a hog, you still need an exit strategy. So if somebody said to me, well, if I buy a stock and it's at 20 bucks and it goes to 40 and it doubles, then, then I just want to hold it because it might double again and I could lose. Yeah, I could go back to 20, you could lose your gain. So sell half of it. Right, And then you're playing sort of with the house's money. You've taken your gain out, and you have your basis investment still invested. I can't tell you with any stock, and don't send me this the email going, I have them holding this. I can't do that for you. You know your risk tolerances. You know how much money you have. You know what your job security is or is not. You know what secondary income streams you have. You know what you, you got to make these choices. You gotta make these choices for yourself, and none of these freaking investment gurus out there can tell you what to do with your money and help you in the slightest if you're not actually making the end decisions for yourself. You'll do something stupid and you'll make a mistake and it will cost you. But the one thing you cannot do is not know when you would sell. And you need to know that on an up and you need to know that on a down. And some people say don't use stop losses because they're automatic and what have you, then pay attention. And pay attention. Pay very, very close attention to your investments if you're not insuring them with a stop loss. And there's different methodologies of insuring with a stop loss. If you put money in today and stop loss it at 20% immediately, maybe you got a problem, right? But if your investment's gone up 30%, then move your stop loss up 5% underneath it and insure 25% of your gains. You have to start thinking like these people that run this game think, Instead of thinking with greed, most Americans lose money in investments because they are greedy because they fear missing the opportunity instead of insuring the gain. That is not how smart investors play the game. I'm not talking about traders. I'm talking about investors. Traders trade the stuff daily. You, When you say to your financial advisor, well, if this stock appreciates 15% in value this year, And I needed a 6% return to meet my goals. I want to sell it. And I want to take that 7%. That takes me through next year's requirements for that money. And I want to put that money into a safer place or with more potential upside. And your financial advisor says that's trading and timing the market and I don't do that. You fire him. You fire him now. 
because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. That's exactly what you should be doing. That is exactly what you should do. If you get double the requirement for an investment for the year for it to meet your objectives, you have next year free. There's no reason for that money to be at risk until you're dead sure of the next place to put it. Hold cash. Those of you afraid to hold cash, stop being afraid. I've now explained what I mean by it. I don't care what form it's in, but it's not invested in something. It's in dollars. Don't be afraid to hold some cash. Especially when you've already realized the gain. There's a lot of people right now who went in and bought investments when the market sucked really bad and have huge gains. And you're wondering why the market keeps going up and down and up and down, up and down, up and down, and bouncing around like a basketball, and everybody blames Greece. That's not why. The real reason is because the professional traders are taking profits, buying the bottom, and taking profits, and buying the bottom, and taking profits, and buying the bottom. And unless you're going to spend 24-7 paying attention, if you play that game, you're going to get burned. But when it comes to major movements... If, I'll just put it this way. If you're sitting on investment now that yields you a 40% return in the last two years, take your profits at minimum. Put them somewhere safer. Insure and protect your hard-earned money, especially money that you risked for. Risking for money in some ways is worse than, than working for money. At least with work, I have a one-to-one -one ratio. For an hour, I make $20. With risk, my loss can be catastrophic. And it can accelerate as it declines. And it can take a lot longer to come back. If I work for 20 bucks and I lose it, I can work another hour and I got it back. If I lose 50%, the market has to go up 100% before I'm back to where I started. You can do the math and figure that one out. The next one is if you are going to buy stocks right now, buy the best companies. After a long head and shoulders beating of my personal financial advisor, I'm now in stocks like Procter & Gamble which some people don't like their business practices. I don't either, but they make money and they pay dividends. I will not tell you the other stocks that I'm in because then you will take Jack's portfolio and make it your portfolio. That is not the way to invest because, first of all, you would be buying stocks now when I didn't buy them now. I bought them a while ago. You are also in a different place than I am. What I'm saying here is you need to be looking at the stocks that represent the greatest value by market-leading profitable companies and companies that maintained healthy profits for their sector through the majority of the recession. Walmart is an example. Not one I'm holding, not one I'm telling you to buy because of some other critical factors about Walmart doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. If you're going to hold Walmart, you almost might as well hold cash. The dividends aren't that great because the profit margins are low. So since the stock doesn't have a lot of upside potential or a healthy dividend yield, it's not on my highly desired list. Wouldn't fault you for buying it, but it's a lot like holding cash with risk. Right? So... But that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the companies that, especially what you're really looking for, are companies that their stock took a pretty good hit when the whole market took a hit, but it went down and hit a floor and leveled. And then when they put out their first quarter quarterly earnings report after that, it was solid, and they put the next one out, and it was solid, and they paid dividend, dividend twice in a row after the drop, and then the stock started really rebounded. And it stayed hard, and it, whenever the markets dropped, the floor's higher now, and they keep on producing value and profit back to their shareholders, and they have a real product, not a fake financial illusionary product. 
If that's the company, then they're probably a solid investment. And still, back to my last one, you need to know when would you sell. When do I sell this investment? Anytime you're recommended an investment by a financial liar, I mean advisor, and he says, I'm recommending you buy a thousand shares of this stock, hold it for the dividend yields, long term, and you need to say, when do we sell it? And when he goes, huh? You go, well, at what price, if it went up high enough, would we consider selling it or selling a portion to protect the gains? And make him find you an answer. And if he can't find you one, find your own answer. You know these things for yourself. You're looking for him to give you ideas, and then you're looking to take his ideas and make a decision for yourself. If you're looking for him to say X, Y, Z, P, D, Q, right? Do these things, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. You're looking for the wrong guy. You need a guy that's going to enlighten you to the potential risks of anything you want to do. But when you go to him and go, I think I want to do this. He goes, well, you can do that, but here's the risks. Here's the downside. And then you can judge the downside for yourself against potential upside of other things and make your own decisions. The next one is do not hold any, and I don't I mean don't hold any long-term bonds right now. Uh, the risk of default is too great. I don't care who the bond issuer is. So if you're holding a 10-year bond, get rid of it. I, I do not trust the bond market in a long-term bond right now. I wouldn't hold anything past a year in the bond market right now. And I would be very careful and very selective where I put my money. If I could make three or four points on a one-year bond, which is almost impossible right now, um, I might do it. But really, bonds are a place to be scared right now with long-term. Those of you in 401ks that do not have a cash option, though, there may be a very safe, at least what they're calling safe bond fund, and it may be a place to hold your money as close to cash as you can get during times where you're really concerned about the overall drop in the major indexes where most of your other funds are. But you need to be in a situation with your 401k, sign up for online uh, uh, capability where you can change it as quickly as possible when you feel you need to. Please don't run any of your investments on autopilot anymore. I've said it before, but I mean right now you're at a point where you've got to pay attention heavily. The next thing you need to do is keep an eye on TIPS bond yields. TIPS stand for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Basically, it's a bond. If you buy a bond from the federal government, generally speaking, that bond, bond comes with an interest rate. So they sell you, let's make it as simple as possible, a one, and you can't do this right now. It's just not there. Let's say they were selling you a one-year $100 bond, and the market's bidding $95 for that bond. Effectively, it's a one-year 5% gain. It's not exactly, but let's just let it be that way. And what that means is that I buy it for $95 and I can cash it in at the end of term for $100 and I made 5 bucks per $95 investment. So it's actually a little higher than a 5% yield. And again, there's nothing like that right now. Um, and if you look at the bond market, there's all different terms of bonds you can buy. I'm on the uh, Treasury site right now and I see bonds going anywhere from a three two-year bond is the shortest term I see uh, available right now to 29-year bonds. And some of them are called TIPS, and some of them are considered a note bond. A note bond is what I just described. A TIPS bond works this way. You get the interest rate that the bond is paying or inflation, whichever is greater. So if there's a 4% inflation rate over four years, you get that inflation rate when you cash your bond in. Basically, the Treasury is saying, we will protect you against inflation. If there's 5% inflation, no matter what you've paid for the bond, you'll get the 5%, plus the face value of the bond, so effectively a 5% yield over that term. What we normally see with the tips is people are paying less 
for a TIPS uh, than they are for a, a typical bond because they're, they're getting insurance, right, is a way to look at it. But they're still getting a yield. So even if there's no inflation, they get, you know, a tenth of a percent or two-tenths of a percent or something. Right now, on a 10-year TIPS, the yield uh, is point is 0.6 all right so that's that's pretty dad gone low on a 10 year uh tips that means that basically investors are willing to take six tenths of one percent on their money over 10 years that's not six tenths of a percent per year um what's more interesting is if you look at the short term tips yield right now uh on a four year tips with an eight month term the current yield percentage is negative 0.8. Negative 0.8. That means a person on a four-year tips right now is willing to pay more than face value for the bond because they're betting inflation is coming over that period of time. So they're willing to, if there's no inflation, take a loss on their money in a bond to the federal government. When you see things like that, it's an indicator that the, the big investors, because We don't set these bond prices. The big investors that come in and bid at auction set these prices, and then they're adjusted slightly higher in cost and sold to the general public that wants to invest a few thousand or a few hundred thousand dollars. And when you see that, what you're seeing is the people with the biggest wallets in the world betting on inflation over investment return. So keep an eye on those. And those have been in that kind of a weird, wonky, upside-down state for about a year and a half now. I think it was a year and a half ago was the first time that people were paying uh, more than just like a, an arbitration, paying more than face value for a tips bond. Keep an eye on that. I know it sounds technical, but it just tells you what people with lots of money see happening to the value of money over time. Um, the next one, and this is so important, remember that most, quote, experts, unquote, on TV are actually idiots. Most of them don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. Most of them don't know what the hell they're doing. Most of them have no understanding of where normal people are in their lives. And most of them have handlers who tell them what to say. <coughs> Susie Orman, um, you know, just saying, do not trust these people. They have terrible track records. They really do. Most of these people have terrible track records. And you will find that the people that get the most belittled by mainstream media, like Peter Schiff, uh, actually have great track records. And so when you see the guy that everybody just like kind of swats their hand at, says, ah, this guy always says that or whatever, uh, that's probably the guy you can listen to to at least some degree. But most of these guys in a suit that give you these chipper reports about where to go and what to buy next – They'll tell you how accurate their predictions are, but they'll show you 10 out of 100 of their predictions, and the other 90 sucked and were completely wrong. Most experts are idiots. It doesn't mean you can't extrapolate information from what they're talking about, because they're probably speaking about fact. So you can use their underlying factual analysis, but their forward-looking statements take the information at the cost that you paid for it. In other words, you pay nothing for it, and that's probably exactly what the information's work, worth, is absolutely, positively nothing. Um, next one, and this is going to get out of the financials a little bit, and a little bit more on the practical, down-to-earth stuff we need to be doing. Please develop your local community. And I mean relationships. I mean know who the little old ladies on the street are. Uh, the people that are going to need you to look after them. Know the people that can help you look after yourself and each other. 
develop a strong sense of community at the neighborhood level, at least know everybody's name, and be able to get in touch with everybody quickly and try to have the best relationships you can. This is not about creating prepper compounds, right? But this is about an absolute reality that about 10% of the people in the world, the first time they're pressured and think they can get away with it, will slit your throat. And I do mean that both literally and figuratively, because there's a percentage of those that will literally slit your throat, and there's a percentage of them that will just steal and destroy what you have because they don't have. So your goal is to identify the 9 in 10 that won't, and make sure that there's a strong bond and an allegiance of those 9 out of 10 to each other, and try to determine and realize you could be wrong who the 10% are. But have your eyes on them. And the people that you know have drug and alcohol problems, the people that you know have uh, kind of riffraff coming in and out of their house that are probably dealing narcotics and things like that, they're probably armed and they're almost definitely in the 10%. So know who those people are, identify them, talk to your neighbors, and develop your local community. Next one, do not bet on any government money, specifically at 100%. If you are a disabled veteran getting a pension, if you are a teacher getting a pension, if you are going to retire in five years and get a pension, I'm not saying there won't be any money. I, I, I think it will actually be a very cold day in hell where people that are supposed to get Social Security or any type of government retirement will get zero. I think the day of getting 80% of what you were promised is rapidly approaching. And that sounds good when you're 30 and still, well, 80% is better than nothing. But when you haven't prepared yourself to do without that 20%, and you and your financial liar and everybody else were budgeting your life and your life expectancy on having 100%, and now you get 70 or 80, it can be a real problem. I'm, tell, I'm telling you this in the world of food stamps. I'm telling you this in the world of welfare checks. I'm telling you this everywhere. Uh, I'm telling you that they're going to cut this stuff. And they will cut the stuff you worked for before they cut the stuff that people just get. In other words, they will cut retirement benefits. They will cut city, state, county pensions before they cut the welfare checks to the people that don't do anything in return for the welfare. They will cut the working man's pay first. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you're angry. I don't care if you say you'll burn down a building. I don't care what you say. I'm not telling you what's fair. I'm not telling you what should happen. I'm not telling you what I... And this is where I get angry sometimes, folks. Whereas when I tell you what's going to happen, I get hostility toward me as though I'm saying, this is what I would do if I was in charge. Please understand, none of this crap is what I would do if I was in charge. Not in the way that they're going to do it. I'm telling you what they're going to do. And the way I can tell you, again, back to what I said to me, and the way I can tell you what they're going to do is I can look where it's happened before and I can see what other people did and they always do it this way. They always do it the same way. They always take from the worker first and they take from the dregs of humanity second. Do you know why? The dregs of humanity, and I'm not saying you're a bad person if you're on welfare, but I'm telling you, of the whole group, There's a lot of people that are in the third generation of drawing a check and then no one back to their grandmother has actually ever worked a job. And in that segment, they're the first people to go completely flipping nuts and start burning buildings down. They take first from the people that have the most to lose by going nuts. 
So the, the, the retiree that's relatively well off that will simply be downgraded from an upper middle class retirement to a lower middle class retirement is a lot less likely to burn down a building or riot in a street than a person that's going to go from having everything provided to only having half of that crap provided. And that's why they do it, and it's a logical, though immoral, way to do things. And it's what's going to happen. So if you have government income from a city, a state, a county, a federal government, I'm not saying it's all going to go away. I'm not saying it's going to dry up. I'm not even saying that some of you won't get all of it. I'm saying don't bet on getting all of it. Have a plan to supplement at least losing 20%. And if you don't lose it, you'll be better off. Because you'll have 20% more instead of 20% less. If you have a plan to supplement it, you stay where you are, you stay par, if, if it, if it falls. And if it, if it doesn't fall, you get more in the end when things level out. Don't bet on it. Please don't bet on it. Right now, I talked a lot about bonds, stocks, exit points and things. I'm going to tell you what I think the best investment for your money is right now anywhere in America. Land. Not houses. Land. Um, we're looking at some land ourselves in a, a pretty substantial chunk of land uh, about an hour from here. Yes, it would kind of be a deer lease. Yes, it would kind of be a bug out location. Yes, it's really, really big and has water, and I get permaculture the crap out of it. Yes, it's recreational, but it's the biggest reason I'm willing to put my money there is I believe it's a safe, stable investment long term. I believe that the wealthiest people in the world when you look at where they're still putting money into America, are buying two commodities and only two commodities hand over fist right now. They are buying farmland and they are buying timberland. And yes, a manufacturing base is returning to America. And I, I again, I think we could come out the other side of this and maybe this nation can become better than it ever was before. But we're going to have a bloodbath on the way. So they're investing in manufacturing. They're bringing manufacturing back to America in some places. That's creating jobs. That's all good and well. But the problem is it's not happening faster than the jobs are being lost. So you can say it's great that you create 100,000 jobs, but if we lose 150, we have a net loss of 50,000. And that's the kind of cycle we're in right now. Well, they're planning, they're, they're watching all this real estate collapse. And they're looking at people being willing to work for less than they've ever been worked before, willing to work for before, and you get none of the hassles of offshore manufacturing. So a lot of people are investing there, but you can't emulate that, right? You, the average person listens to this show. You're not going to go buy a manufacturing facility and make clocks or guitars or radios or computers or television sets or DVDs or anything. You don't have the money. The cost of entry is too high. Buying farmland. 10,000 acres and contracting it out to, to farmers is beyond our means as well. Buying, you know, 20,000 acres of timberland and sitting on the stump, as they call it, for 20 years is beyond most of our, our, our reach as well. But land is a lot like stock. You can buy smaller and smaller pieces. Actually, it's a lot like gold with more intrinsic underlying value. I think land's a better investment than gold, folks. I really do. They ain't making any more dirt. The, the, the quantity is finite. Gold is not a finite quantity. We have no idea how much gold there really is to be discovered yet. Land, we ain't getting no more of it. The global warming people are right, we're going to have less of it. Land has held its value. If you go and look at the average price of a home in America over the last three years, and the average price of an acre or ten acres or a thousand acres of land, there's a dramatic difference in the value hold. So I think land is the best investment you can make. 
people will tell you that property values are going to continue to decline in the future. I agree. It is great to swing for the bottom, but you don't always hit it. Just like your financial advisor would tell you in one of his salient moments, if we see a stock dropping, and we know the fundamental underlying value of the stock is still strong, and we know that stock is going to rebound because somebody found a thumb in a Coke can or something stupid like that, then when that drop hits, at some point we got to reach in there and we got to buy it before we lose the opportunity. And it would be great if we picked the very, very bottom. But if we don't need the money tomorrow, we can buy now, let the bottom hit, hold our way through to the rebound. We, we, there's a point where you have to start looking at land that way. And if you just go out and buy any piece of land you can find, dumbass. All right, that's the only word I can I can use to describe you. Because Jack said to buy land, so I'm going to go you know get radical and no, you got to be really really smart. I've been looking for a second piece of land. Let's see now. Oh, forever. Right before we even moved here, I've really been looking hard since we moved here and got rid of the place in Texas. Because now I own one piece of land. Two is one, one is none, that type of thinking as well. I always believe in having a fallback. But I've been looking really, really hard. We've been here since May. I may have found one, I may not. I don't know, I'm going to go look at it. By the way, those of you that keep asking me about the land I was going to go look at, and I said it was like northwestern Arkansas, south, uh, northeastern Oklahoma, that area, and want to know what the, the outcome of that is, it's a no-go. I can't recommend that you buy it. That's That's the end of that story. It's not a bad or a good. It's just there's some legal wonkery going on there that I just didn't like, and I can't give it my endorsement. So there, there's the thing on that. Land, though, look for land, and look for land that has long-term value, and certain things make land worth more money, like having water and water access on it. Uh, rights, easements, all different types of things. Make sure titles are clear. Make sure there's no legal shenanigans going on there. Make sure you get a warranty deed. Check out mineral rights, etc. But please understand, please understand, the one commodity that's been the most stable in human history is not gold. Right? It is land. Because land can always have some use that comes out of it. We can buy land, and if we decide not to uh, build on it, not to sell it, we can even take you know 20 acres of land and block off five or six acres of pasture and lease it to somebody and create a dividend out of land. There are so many things we can do with land that we can't do with other commodities. To me, it's the best investment when you find the right piece at the right time for the right amount of money, and yes, you can afford it with no detrimental effects to your financial health. So that's, and I would, even if somebody asks me right now, if I'm sitting on $50,000 worth of stock and I find a really great piece of land for $20,000, would I sell that $20,000 of that $50,000 worth of stock and buy the land? Yes, because I believe long term it's a better play. I believe short term it's probably a lot better play. I also believe that I can do things with the land that I cannot do with the stock. But it's only the right piece of land where you actually can do something with it and you know what you're going to do with it. If you're just going to buy it and stick it away like a stock certificate, it's, it's going to create an expense and enough, nothing else, property taxes. Please check those out as well. One of the big things with raw land, those property taxes are usually dirt cheap. And as long as we can get into a situation where we can lease access to that land to somebody to offset the property taxes and make a little bit of money, again, it's like a dividend on something with a much stronger underlying value. And no CEO of your land is going to say something stupid and tank the stock price tomorrow. You know, nobody, uh, nobody that's, you know, of the board of directors from your land is going to release a piece of information that the product you thought you were going to release. See, it just doesn't have any of the problems that stocks do. 
Those of you that say gold is money, I've seen gold drop 16% a day. If something can lose 16% of its value in a day, it's not money. It's a commodity. Right? And I know I've just upset some of you. And I'm going to tell you, I do think you should own gold and silver. I've been saying it forever. I won't change my numbers. 5 to 10% of your net worth should be in silver and gold or other precious metals or other precious metal style assets. You decide how. That could be ETFs. That could be gold mining stocks. I don't care. But that is a great hedge. But it's only one arrow in a quiver that should have about 50 arrows in it. And I think one of the big arrows with the sharp point should be a piece of land. And I think you should be looking for it. And if you're dead broke and you have no money and you have no hope for land, get on the internet and shop for land any, anyway. If it can be something to shoot for, it'll make you more likely to save that 20% that I keep running my mouth about. It'll give you a dream. It'll give you a, a goal. It'll give you an ambition. And it'll give you a financial education of what land values really are. So when someone sticks a piece of land in front of you and you go, that looks like a great deal, uh, you'll know if it's a great deal or not. If you watch land everywhere... And you see what looks like great pricing, but that land never sells. Pricing ain't as great as you think it is. Go out and look at property. You know, even if you're not going to buy it, try not to waste real estate agents' time. You know, get on the phone and say, look, I just like to go look at it. I don't want you to meet me out there. I'm really not looking to buy. I'm just trying to get a feel for the land market right now. If you really want to meet me, you can. And then it's his choice. But definitely, definitely look at that. The next one is increase your financial IQ daily. And, and it can just start with vocabulary. Listen to Bloomberg's In the Loop or, you know, CNN Money or whatever. And every time you hear a word you don't really understand, just write it down and learn the definition of it. Uh, it will, it, it, it's like being a computer programmer. The more commands and language you learn in a computer programming world, the more you can do. And, and one of the big problems that most Americans have is they're financially ignorant. They're not just ignorant about how money is created. There's a lot of economists that are ignorant to the creation of money uh, dynamic. But they're ignorant to money and investment and cash flow and, and, and market trends and, and what a commodity actually is and what money actually is. And if you just start to learn a, a broader vocabulary and understand these things, you'll be able to be more likely to make those decisions that we talked about earlier. The next one is I want you to really focus on gaining some percentage of self-sufficiency with your five needs. That means food, some percentage of self-sufficiency. I don't care if it's 10%. That means you only have to pay for 90 now. You're ahead, right? Water, uh, if you can get on a well, man, you're good to go. If you can get property with surface water that can be used for irrigation, where you have the rights to the water or what have you, if you can put in rain can, anything you can do to reduce your need on the water grid, I'm telling you folks, I know it's hard to really get your head around this, But water is the next big commodity that's going to be gobbled up, grabbed up, and, and made to be very, very expensive. I want to wrap the show up in a normal time frame, so I'm not going to go deep into the water thing today. If you doubt me on this, then all I want you to do today is go to Google and search for, in quotation marks, two words, blue gold, and start reading. Because that's what investors are calling water now, blue gold. Right? They're calling it blue oil as well. They're calling it the new oil. Those are all terms you can check out. But that is where people that have billions of dollars are sticking money now, other than land and other than the manufacturing sectors and other than all the other choice places that they put their money, like betting on inflation with uh, treasury-insured uh, uh, you know, tips bonds. And again, when we look at what these really wealthy people are doing, there's only so many of the things they do that we can do. Um, 
And we can't go out there and, again, invest in a, a, a facility that does manufacture. We can't block, buy up rights to half of an aquifer. Uh, like T. Boone's Pickens is trying to basically take over part of the Ogallala Aquifer down in Texas. And it's actually being very successful at doing that under the guise of I'm putting in windmills and pumping gas. And he's also gobbling up water rights at the same time. So we can't do that, but we can say, well, water is important, so I'm going to try to make some portion of my water use self-sufficient. And again, even rain catchment with some uh, cisterns can do a lot for you in that respect. Um, security, I think it goes without saying, own a weapon, know how to use it. Uh, but have a level of security around your property. Start to ask yourself, if somebody wanted to come here and harm me, if I wanted to break in my own house, how would I get in? How would I do it? When are we most vulnerable? Assess these things and make sure that you're shoring them up in every meaningful way you possibly can. Uh, I mentioned MERS uh, motion detectors. They're inexpensive for what they do, folks. They really are. And knowing someone's there before they get to your front door is a big part of being prepared for them and making them go away. And they can go away on their own accord, or they can go away with a lifetime membership in the Dirt Nap Society. It's up to them. I just want it to be your choice and not their choice. You know, I, I really do. I want it to be uh, a situation where if you're in danger, you're the one that gets to decide uh, who has to go out, you know, horizontal. I, I don't want it to be you, and I don't want it to be your family. And awareness and security is a big, big part of that. Energy as well. I don't care if it's solar. I don't care if it's wind. I don't care if it's just solar hot water that reduces your energy requirement. Energy and water are two things that are going to become very, very expensive in the future. On shelter, I want you to start thinking about um, your shelter self-sufficiency this way. If you have um, 100% debt against your property, if you're upside down, let's say, or you went down at 1%, you have 0% self-sufficiency in your home just financially. Right? If you have 50% equity in your home, you have 50% self-sufficiency. Um, you know, that can be variable based on the market going up or down. But let's say that your home uh, is worth $100,000 and you owe $50,000 on it. In theory, if you had to, you could sell it for the $100,000, take the $50,000 worth of profit, and go get a home that provides you about 50% of what you have now. I don't know if anybody's ever put it to you that way before. But if your home's worth $100,000 and you owe $101,000 on it, you actually have a negative 1% self-sufficiency for shelter. You need to build a self-sufficient shelter component into your life. Some fallback plan. Now, maybe you can't get out of the mortgage right now. Maybe it's just the way you have to live right now. Maybe it's an RV and a piece of dirt somewhere. So we combine the investment with its other potential. I don't know what it is for you, but I'm telling you, you have to have a plan that's bigger than I'll go to a public park and build a plywood shelter like they're doing in the parks around New York City and New Jersey right now. That has to be better than that one. Because that's the, you know, it's, it's not skid row. It's not a cardboard box. It's not an underpass. Please have a better shelter plan than that. Those five needs develop some percentage. And again, I don't care if it's 10, 15% in some of them, but some percentage of self-sufficiency. If nothing else, it allows you to reduce costs. Reduce costs and maintain what you have at a time where you have no other choice. And until then, you're basically building up a reserve. It's like the squirrel burying the acorns. You got to bury as many of them as you can find. Um, next one, and this might sound hard right now, and it's part of that 20% savings. Try to be as cash rich as you possibly can right now. So even with the land investment, you got to really think this one through. 
Um, the problem with land is if you own it and then you need money short term, it may be difficult to liquidate quickly. That's where the stock becomes more advantageous than the land. That's one of the places where it changes. See, the, 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 the issue with stock, and you, the financial liars would be quick to point this out, if you need money from your Exxon stock, you can sell it tomorrow. But at the same time, they're telling you, you're putting this money in there for 50 years, Joe. Don't worry about it. So if it really is 10-year money or 20-year money or 30-year money or 50-year money, then it's pretty safe in land. If it's short-term money, land is not a good place for it. The other problem is, if you own a crappy piece of land and your money's tied up in it and a really great piece of land pops up and you'd like to exchange it, by the time you liquidate the crappy piece, you may not be able to buy the good piece. And I said this before when the recession started, it's still ongoing and it's going to get better if you're in the right place. The whole world is going on sale. Everything is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper from an investment standpoint and everything from a necessity standpoint is going to get more expensive. It's going to be cheap to buy land. It's going to be cheap to buy houses. It's going to be cheap to buy RVs. It's going to be cheap to buy boats. It's going to be cheap to buy luxuries that can be converted to long-term assets. And it's going to be expensive to buy bread and, and milk and cereal. Rent will be expensive and property will be cheap. Why? It will be easier to rent as far as approval goes than buy. That's already happening now. Rental rates are going up at the same time property rates are going down. Have you really thought about what that means? Have you really thought about what that means for our country? People say, how are you so sure? That's one of the great indicators that a major recession is either going to stay in place or a depression is going to be the ultimate reality. As rent goes up at the same time property is going down, that's backwards. Right? That means there's more and more money in buying up houses and renting them to suckers. Why? Because a sucker can't buy. Why in the world would you pay a rent on a piece of property... And have that rent be $1,200 a month when you could buy the property and pay $850 in mortgage and, and everything combined. You know, principal interest, uh, PMI, uh, taxes, the whole nine yards. Why would you spend, you know, $250, $350 more to rent than buy? There's only two reasons. One, you can't buy because you don't qualify. And two, because you have no confidence in your long-term future and you know that at least if it's rent, you can jet and maybe give up one month and then they can chase you for the rest if they want to and they're not going to get it anyway. That's to, to stay mobile because you have no faith and confidence in the future and because you can't afford to buy or because you cannot qualify to buy. Those are the only reasons. That's happening in leaps and bounds right now. And it's not as good for the landlord as it probably will be eventually. There's a lot of empty houses right now. But in the quality areas where people want to live, if you can pick up property cheap, you can find a tenant very, very quickly. Especially, And the worse the market is, the more that's true. Do that in Dallas, Texas? Nah, not so much. The market's not really that bad. Texas has been really insulated from a lot of this. Phoenix, Arizona, nice house, reasonable rental rate. Tenant. Why? Because the market has collapsed and there's there's a surplus of property for sale and a, and a deficit of buyers. That's a real good indicator the economy is going absolutely in the wrong direction. And hope for recovery is minimal. Right? Uh, so try to be as cash rich as you can is the upshot of that because when the opportunity presents itself, you'll be able to act upon it. So even the money that's invested 
Try to keep the lion's share of even your invested money in easily liquidated investments. Something you can quickly liquidate. That's where land's one detriment is. So land is a portion of your portfolio, not your portfolio. If you are 100% invested in land, you are wrong. If you are 100% invested in gold, you are wrong. If you're 100% invested in bonds, you are wrong. If you're 100% invested in fruit flies or fruit loops or golf courses or anything, you're wrong. 100% is wrong every time. That's all the eggs in one basket. So make sure when I say something like the best investment is land, you understand it's still only a piece. Maybe it's 10, 15% of your net worth. That doesn't count your house. That's a raw land investment is a total portion of your wealth. Maybe it's 5%. I don't know. You have to figure that out for yourself. Um, the next one is don't act in fear. Think before you do anything. If anything I say today gets you all excited and upset and you're going to run out and do something like now... I'm telling you, the world will not end this week. It's not going to happen. There's enough stability there that things are not going to change that drastically for you this week. Again, we're back to you guys with your $2,000, 3000 in a 401k. If the whole thing evaporated like a fart in the wind tomorrow morning, it's not really going to affect your long-term life. I know it'll hurt. I know it'll suck. I would feel bad for you. I'd be mad as hell if I were you. But it, it, it really isn't. It just isn't going to change your life. Because you're 25, you have three grand. That three grand was not even going to be touched for another 40 years so or 30 years, right? So don't act in fear and, and realize that the longer term that something's sitting there for, the more time you have to make a choice about it. But please make sure you do have access to cash or access to liquidatable securities. You've got to have those in your life right now and pay attention to them. But don't do these things in fear Anything you think you should do today, you can probably, except for some very key opportunities, like trading a stock that went up for some stupid reason you know it's going to come back down, and for that day you're a trader, even though you're maybe a trader once a year, you just know that was a dumb spike and that people are going to come. So sometimes you have to do that, but in most instances, if you think you need to do it today, it can wait till tomorrow, sleep on it, and think about it. That will prevent you from doing something stupid. The next one is, do not listen to conventional wisdom during unconventional times. Please understand that even though they've changed their marketing, all of these financial idiots are still giving you the same advice. They're just saying you're going to work five more years. Well, that doesn't help anybody. So the whole put 10% into your 401k and don't worry about that and it makes sense to have a mortgage and you get a tax deduction, all the conventional advice is complete bullshit Because there's nothing conventional about the time we're living in or what we're building up to. It's never been the case before where the country had 20 times more debt than money. All right, It's never been the case before where millions of retirees were absolutely at some point going to lose a portion of what was promised to them. It's never been the case before where the nation literally is Bankrupt, not going bankrupt, not we can see it coming someday. But there's never been a case before in history where we've had a $105 trillion or $110 trillion hole in our future obligations. This is the most unconventional environment we've ever been in. There's never been an environment before where you can bring on switched-on financial people and they say, what's the best place for your money? And the honest ones go, I don't know. People like Mike Gazer tell you, tie your boat up to the dock, ride the storm out. People like Carl Denninger tell you, put your money in cash and, and know where it is and be in control of it and don't play the trader game like I do unless you can spend five days a week paying attention to it. And at the end of the day, cash out. Don't sleep on, on an investment. 
That's what these guys are saying right now. The reason they're saying that is because they don't know. If I would have brought any of these guys in in 1985, they would have said, buy this, this, and this. The conventional wisdom does not work in an unconventional society. And that's where we are. And we're heading into uncharted waters. You have to be smarter. You have to be in greater control. And you have to take more responsibility now than any other time in history. And anybody that tells you anything else is absolutely, 100%, completely full of shit. And those of you that get upset when I use the occasional four-letter word, in that instance, there is no other way to say it accurately. They are full of shit. And anything else is a disservice to the mind of the listener full of crap. That, does, that doesn't really sum it up, does it? I'm serious. They're lying to you because they don't know any better. They don't know what else to say. They've been running the same script for 25 years. They don't know how to change it. So then they, you know, Susie Orman, it's the new American dream. You're going to work till you're 70. Ugh. How about the new American dream is not working till you die? And understanding how to do that, how to do more with less, how to not keep playing the same stupid game. But no, they don't know how to do that because they can't make any money telling you the truth. And that's the facts. They can't make money by telling you the truth. So they're going to make as much as they can in the storm so that when the storm hits, they can go shore up somewhere and ride it out and go, well, see, I actually said, and what I actually meant was, and come up with a new plan. Don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. The last one, please remember this. The prepared can always profit and prosper. In the Great Depression, people became millionaires. They were smart people that didn't get hit by the storm. They got out of the way when the train was coming. When they saw everybody saying everybody's going to be rich, they realized it can't possibly be the truth. And they got out of the way. And then they were smart about what they did. And they became landlords or they became farmers when they could buy the farm for nothing. And I don't know what the new thing really is. I'm not Yoda. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not Yoda. Those are two things you cannot assume that I am when you ask me questions. Because I don't have all the answers for you. What I'm telling you is if you're smart and you're prepared, and you do all the things I talked about today, you increase your financial IQ, you don't overexpose yourself and risk money, you have exit strategies, you have cash, you, you, you don't act in fear, that over time... Through this war, which is what it's going to be like, a war, you will find opportunities. And you will be able to logically, methodically capitalize on those. And some people out there listening to that, that means you'll become a multimillionaire. And some people out there, that means you'll become really, really happy. And you might be happy with very little. But you'll figure out how to provide that little for yourself. And I don't know where you are on that spectrum, and I really don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I am not arrogant enough, like somebody recently on the blog, to tell you how you should live your life. If you are happy in an RV on a little piece of river property somewhere, roasting marshmallows every night, fine. I don't care. I would eat the marshmallows. They're full of sugar. But if that's what you want, I don't care. Do what you want. But be prepared to capitalize. The prepared always prosper. And, and what you get when you talk to, like, talk, go on like these financial forums and stuff and talk to people, uh, interviews and things like that. Well, what should I buy now? Maybe nothing. Be prepared. What's the opportunity? I don't know. Right? You don't live with me. I don't live with you. How the hell do I know? Right? For me, 
buying a really great classic car when it's depreciated down to nothing because nobody's buying it might be a great opportunity. If I have auto body and mechanical skills in a garage sitting around and I know how to, and I can do everything myself for next to nothing and take five years to do it and the money I put into it is crap and I don't care if I lose it. And for you, you could lose your shirt in the same buy. The same quote opportunity could be a disaster for one person and I'm not going to buy a classic car. It's just an arbitrary example. What's an opportunity to me may not be an opportunity to you. Opportunities are seldom universal. They're almost always individual. And the ones that turn into the greatest thing ever are highly individualized. There's a lot of great captains of industries out there, CEOs, visionaries, creators, that created a great website or a great product that became multimillionaires. Some of them became billionaires. And you think, if I only had that idea first or I only did that before they did, you'd probably still have crap and they probably would have still came along and did it their way and made it work. Right? The concept that you would be the first person to come up with something like the rear windshield wiper or something and become, I mean, it's the same odds as winning the lottery. It can happen, but don't bet on it. But if you have your eyes and your ears and your heart and your mind open and you're increasing your intelligence and your vocabulary and your knowledge daily and you stay strong and powerful and you're building solidity in your life so you don't have to act in fear, when your opportunity comes, you'll be able to capitalize on it. But if you're not prepared, even when you see it, you may not be able to make it work. Now, a lot of people will do it with just drive, desire, passion, and dreams. But whatever you accomplish with those, if you add to it preparedness, you can do more. Like I said yesterday, there's reason to be tremendously optimistic about the future. Just understand, we're all getting in the muddy trench together. There's going to be mortars and crap going off all over the place. Some people are going to get fully taken out. And you need to be prepared to fight that battle. Again, for those of you that are literalists, it's a freaking metaphor. But it's a damn good one. And it is what's coming. And I want you to be prepared for it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
shirt. 